Here's the problem with being a chef. Doesn't matter how great our food is. If service isn't there, people will not come back. Doesn't matter how amazing the food is. If the service is spot on, amazing, and the food is mediocre, guess what? People will come back and they'll come back again and again because they built that relationship with the service and that service is what's really giving them the experience. So for me, that's what I learned at Tastings was that it wasn't just about Rich Garcia putting this food on the, on the table. It was about the entire Tastings teams coming together and lifting each other up. Welcome to the Hospitality Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Turk. Join me as we dive into the personal stories of some of the world's best hospitality professionals. We follow the journey of their ups, downs, and wild turns to find out what it truly takes to make it in the amazing world of hospitality. This episode is brought to you by our podcast partners at Real-Time Reservation. Their inventory management system is best in class for hotels and resorts to manage their non-room inventory. The web-based application allows for creative upselling of overnight and daytime visitors with add-ons and pre-planned packages. Hotel guests and non-guests can reserve cabanas, pool chairs, activities, amenities, excursions, events, day passes, and much more. The real-time reservation platform offers a fully integrated pre-arrival portal where guests are verified through the property management system. Guests can prepay for cabanas and activities through credit card integrations, which are then processed through point of sale. All of our listeners that might be interested in using real-time reservation are welcome to explore the demo at realtimereservation.com. Once again, that's realtimereservation.com. Welcome to another episode of the Hospitality Mentor Podcast, and today I'm excited. We've got Richard Garcia, the Senior Vice President of Food and Beverage for Remington Hotels. Richard, thanks for joining me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Steve. Really appreciate it. Well, Richard, we jump right in here. What was your first job in hospitality? I'm going to tell you, man, that it's it's definitely unorthodox in the, in the higher end world, but my first my first real hospitality job was as a dishwasher at an Applebee's in Miami. Actually, it was in, uh, in Doral. And I remember walking in, I think I was 15 years old. And at that point, I unfortunately had, uh, had decided that school wasn't for me. But my dad was, uh, was pretty adamant that, uh, that, you know what, I was going to work regardless, right? Um, so I went to an Applebee's. I got a dishwasher job. And opening night, the grill cook ends up walking away. And I have the GM come up to me and he says, hey, have you ever cooked before? And I'm like, dude, I'm 15, man. Like, what do you think? And, uh, and he looks at me and he says, well, you're starting today. And I got thrown right on the grill. And I will tell you that out of all the positions there, probably the one place you don't want to start on as a new cook is a grill where you've got to take temperatures. But uh, I, I did extremely well, apparently. I was never moved off the grill. Uh, became a kitchen supervisor there at 16 and nobody liked me because of that. But that was the first hospitality job. And, and I owe my career to Applebee's, which I never thought I would say. <laughs> that is nuts. All right. So let me rewind this for a second, because I know as a 15 year old, you know, walking into a kitchen, especially with some, I'm sure there's some grown men in there, some grown women, and you're a 15 year old just to wash some dishes and then to get on a grill is the hardest station. What do you remember about that? What was that feeling like? So I'm going to tell you that, that for me, I think the biggest feeling was at the time, uh, and as I, as I mentioned, you know, look, I, I, had, I had somewhat of a unique childhood, and, and, and I decided that at 15, I was bigger than school. And, and so I think walking into here, I kind of had an attitude and I kind of had an ego that, you know, yeah, I should be the grill cook, right? Or I should be the dishwasher, right, at 15 years old. And it was interesting because I thought that I would be intimidated. But what was interesting was, here's what I loved, man. I could stay up till two in the morning. No one was going to say anything to me, right? Because I was working. There was bad language. There were knives. There was fire. I actually fit right into that culture. So I can tell you that for me, it actually felt great, to be honest, that I was being accepted into this world that I that I didn't know that I looked up to as much then. So, you know, I had a very different outlook on it. I, I'll be frank. I didn't know I shouldn't be on the grill at 15, right? That's something I realized down the road. I just thought, hey, this is where everybody starts. Um, so I can tell you that it was as intimidating as I thought it was going to be. It actually 
was the first time that I felt welcomed in a place in a long time. That's amazing. You know, cause I just think about the kitchens I've like, I've never actually cooked. I, you know, I've heard told this story before where I thought I wanted to be one of those celebrity chefs. Cause I was hosting them at the Lowe's hotel during wine and food festival. Yeah. <laughs> and then I asked the chef to let me get in there and he put me on the grill and I was like, I can't handle this. I, I learned very quickly after a week that it wasn't for me. So impressive for you to know it right off the bat. I appreciate um, that. You know, I've been fortunate. My family has really been in food and beverage my whole life. So the interesting part is I knew that I wanted to be in restaurants when I was six years old. I mean, I don't know how I knew that, but I just knew that's what I wanted to do. I was a latchkey kid as a, as a child. And I remember one day my mother was out working and I was watching Julia Child. And I remember this vividly like it was yesterday. And Julia Child was making a quiche. And my mother was a big cook at the time. And she had par-cooked a pie shell that, you know, day before or something of that nature. And I'm watching Julia. She's making a quiche. She's talking about, you know, par-cooking pie shells. And I said, hey, I got one of those. And I remember going into the kitchen, making the egg portion of the quiche, and ultimately my mother coming home and being like, wow, what, what the hell just happened? What did you do? But from that day on, it was kind of known between my family and myself that being in the kitchen is really where I wanted to be. I just never knew how to get there. That's amazing. And so were, when you said they were in hospitality or working in restaurants, they were in restaurants too, your, your parents? So my family today, my parents actually were not. The rest of my family though was. So uh, my grandfather was a pizza maker and owned grocery stores in Guatemala. My great grandfather actually, his name is Wilson Papineau and you can look him up. Uh, he worked for the USDA and he actually wrote a book called The Fruit Hunters. And he was actually a fruit hunter uh, in the late 1800s. His job was to go to Central and South America and find fruits and vegetables that we eat today. Well, he's responsible for bringing the avocado to the U.S. and has got his own avocado, actually. There's a, there's a Papineau avocado out there that is only grown in two places, and they're in two botanical gardens. One is in Miami, believe it or not, and the other one is in Honduras. But uh, so he was in food. And then today we own a small hotel in Guatemala. My, my cousins have a place in Lake Atilan where I was responsible for supporting them with, uh, with the vegan restaurant that we have down there. So that's my contribution to the family business. And then in Spain, we have uh, my family has numerous restaurants in Logroño, which is the capital of Rioja. So food and beverage has just been a part of our life. And when you grow up Hispanic, you know, to be frank, food and beverage. And, you know, I know you're in Miami and this is a big part of the culture, but, you know, food and beverage is really where, where the family meets and, and that's where things get decided on. And that's where culture truly starts. So again, food is food and beverage, frankly, have just been a part of me since I was a kid. So I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I understand that clear one being here in Miami, but my mom's Venezuelan. So there that part of the family's always together and we're always celebrating that way. We just did that this past weekend. Oh, nice. Back to your story, man. So you're in Applebee's. How long are you in Applebee's? How long are you uh, grinding on the grill? Yeah, I'd say I was probably in Applebee's for about a year and a half, to be honest with you. And interestingly enough, you know, when you work at a chain restaurant as a kid, um, you start to realize that you don't make enough money. You know, I think I think my first salary, believe it or not, was probably $5.25, could have been even under $5 at the time. So I ended up picking up another job at another chain restaurant. And really started to kind of get into that scene. And in Doral on 87th Avenue, uh, you know, all the chain restaurants seemed to be down there. So we all kind of bounced around from the chains. But when I turned 17, you know, I, I was still, unfortunately, work was just honestly funding my passion for bad things at the time. So unfortunately, you know, when I was 17, I started to decide that, hey, you know what, I'm a kid, I'm working, I'm doing things that... I shouldn't be doing from a food and beverage perspective, right? I was a little ahead of my time. So unfortunately, you know, it took me a couple of years to understand and got in a little bit more trouble. Look, I, I unfortunately was someone that used to think that uh, it was very easy to get into someone else's car and drive it from Massachusetts to Florida. And I was and I was the guy doing that. And unfortunately, I ended up getting in trouble. I was still a minor at the time. And I think at that point, my father kind of, you know, he, he taught me a pretty hard lesson. And I remember... He showed up at the juvenile detention center in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where I was caught. And he showed up and he sits down and I, I was just a punk. And I remember saying something to him and I won't repeat here, but I remember him getting up and walking away and he didn't come back for seven and a half months. And I found out later that he could have taken me home that day. But when I gave him a little bit of an attitude, he went back and asked the juvenile judge, hey, what do I do? And 
they had a conversation and he decided that that seven and a half months was probably worth it. I can tell you that when he picked me up after seven and a half months, the next thing I did pretty shortly after that was uh, I was able to get my GED and I joined the Marine Corps at the time. And my grandfather was in the Marine Corps. So it was uh, it was a, you know, kind of an easy way to, to say, hey, let, let me get some discipline in my life. And believe it or not, I walked into the recruiting office and I asked them if I could be a cook in the Marine Corps. And they almost fell off their seat because usually they're giving those assignments to people that don't know what they want to do. So honestly, you know, I worked in restaurants in Miami up until got in trouble and then ended up going into the Marine Corps as a, as a cook. And frankly, that was really where the only formal education I've ever received was in the Marine Corps. Um, but it changed my life completely. You know, it, it not only gave me the discipline, but honestly, it gave me a sense of place and who I was. And I think that was a big problem for me growing up is that I never really knew who I was. So the Marine Corps gave me that, that ability. So I did, I did that. Uh, and I started to, I think, really understand leadership at that point. So I, after the Marine Corps, I ultimately uh, came out of the Marine Corps and very quickly because of, I think, my leadership style and honestly, my story, I started to move up in this world pretty quickly. Uh, I got out of the Marine Corps. I actually ended up joining the Coast Guard after the Marine Corps for two years just because I wanted to do something different. But I was on a positive path. And I can tell you that after that, my first job was as a corporate sous chef for a company here in Massachusetts. And frankly, I I've never looked back from there. I love that you shared so much of that story because it's a unique one. That's why I was excited to talk to you. You know, I want to move back to where, you know, you got in trouble, your dad leaves you there. Was that something you're like, man, I was doing, I wanted to be a cook. That's what I want to be when I get out of here, when you were thinking there, or is that like, all right, man, I just got to get out of here and behave. I'm glad you asked that question because no one ever does. And, and listen, here, here's the funny part is that the biggest thing that I missed was not my friends. I hate to say this, not my family. It was the camaraderie and the feeling that I had in the kitchen. And look, for someone like myself, the kitchen kind of provided an outlet to be bad in, in a way, right? Again, you know, bad language, late nights, you know, um, without getting in trouble, right? And I really missed that, you know, and it was awkward because I remember sitting in juvenile detention, going to, you know, class every day. And the only thing I missed was, Jesus Christ, I just want to cook another steak, you know? And it was amazing. But to be frank, I didn't know when I got out how to do that. And I, and, and I was very embarrassed, you know, to be fair. I didn't know it was embarrassed that I was embarrassed at the time. But now looking back, yeah, I think I was extremely embarrassed. I didn't want to be around my peers per se. So I think going into the military was almost an easy out to kind of get away and disappear for a little while and really focus on myself, my health. And, and, and that that truly was what I was thinking about when I was locked up was how do I get back into cooking again? And that was truly the only thing I missed at the time. <laughs> Man, I appreciate you sharing that. So when you're in the Marines, what's it like there? Because you said you wanted to be a cook, so I'm sure you go through all of your, your training, but what is the kitchen like there? Is it just like mess hall stuff or is it very regimented? Like what is it like cooking in, in the Marines? Depends on how good you are. I'll be honest, Steve, right? You know, if you're not that good of a cook, chances are you're probably going to end up in a mess hall. And it's not that you're a bad cook and you end up in a mess hall as punishment is that you end up going to a place where you can be mentored and taught and someone can really watch you, right? That, that's really the thing. I graduated number one in my class. You know, again, I was never a stupid kid, man. Uh, you know, when I left high school, didn't graduate, when I left high school, I mean, I was like 3.5, 3.6 GPA. It wasn't that I wasn't good. I just didn't like it. So, so ultimately, uh, in that respect, I was really good at what I did at, at, at the military school. And I ended up, uh, you know, being assigned to smaller mess halls and or, you know, cooking for specific high ranking individuals. So for me, I'll be frank, it was not stressful. Uh, I wasn't under fire. And I frankly was in the Marine Corps prior to 9-11. And it was actually pretty awesome, to, to, be, to be honest with you. It was, uh, you know, I got the title of, of being a United States Marine, which is amazing. I got to, you know, go to Marine combat school and learn, you know, all this fun, cool, tactical stuff. Uh, but the reality was my goal was to learn how to cook and have a certificate. And I knew I was never going to do that in college. So that was truly the goal when I went in there. That's awesome. So you come out and you start off at which restaurant? Tell me, you came in like at a corporate sous chef. So give me that. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, just real quick, I get out after 9-11 and I realized that shit, 9-11 just happened. And <laughs> the reality was I wanted, I, at that point, I really wanted to go back in, right? It was just, you know, it's that American kind of sense of pride. And the Coast Guard was looking for anti-terrorism teams. 
And because I was in the Marine Corps, I remember walking into the office. And I'll be frank, I would, I would have cooked in the Coast Guard as well. Walked into the office. Oh, you're a Marine. Well, listen, we've got these, these teams coming up. And they guaranteed me to be a boat driver on a tiny fast boat with machine guns. So, you know, at that age. Sounds hell, pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I did that for two years. I will tell you, I missed cooking every day of my life. But, but I will tell you that what it really did for me was it honed my leadership abilities. It really, you know, at that age, when you're responsible for other people, you know, as, and, and I was what was called the boat coxswain. But if you're responsible for other people and you start to be responsible, you know, for people's life, that impacts you pretty quickly and, and you grow really fast. So I did that for two years. And then when I ended up getting out, the first job I get is at a restaurant company here in Massachusetts called Stoneforge Restaurant Group. At the time, they had two restaurants. We opened up three more for them. But again, remember, I, I didn't go in as a, as a line cook or a sous chef or a supervisor. You know, I went in and they, they said, hey, we need someone at the corporate level who can really, you know, help us streamline current operations and open new ho- or open new restaurants. Um, so that's what I did right out of the military, immediately into a corporate role. And to be frank, you know, it was probably above my my skill set and above my pay grade. But, you know, when you're when you're a military guy and, and, and frankly, when you're someone who at 15 has the ability to kind of say, you know what, I'm going to live life on my own. I don't need anybody any else. It wasn't that hard to jump into a leadership role like that. And I'm a very hands on person. I mean, even to this day, you'll still find me, you know, whether it's now cooking for my CEO or other, you know, VIP events, the reality is I still put my chef coat on. So for me, moving right into Stoneforge was was great because not only did I have an above property position pretty young, but I was also able to get in the kitchen when and where I wanted to. So I always chose to go into the kitchens where, you know, maybe we're a little more upscale. We had a we had a place called the the, the Stoneforge Public House, which was the upscale version. I found myself spending a lot of time there because I hadn't really done a lot of higher end food and upscale food, but I was able to pick and choose how to do that. So, you know, I'd knock on wood because I've had fortunate positions where I could kind of control my destiny. So that's, that's, that's exactly how I started to immerse myself and continue to get better and continue to become a better cook, even though I didn't have years and years of experience in a Michelin star kitchen, I was able to really dig into places where I work because frankly, I, I could make those decisions. And that was unheard of at the time, but luckily it happened to me. So, so that's kind of how I started to, uh, to build my career at that point uh, through Stoneforge as a corporate chef when I was a kid. So That's amazing. You said you probably wouldn't hire that person today. So it just shows what kind of person you were coming up with that confidence to say, Hey, I can do this. See, I think that's the biggest thing. You said the word confidence. And I, you know, I, I tell a lot of the kids that I work with today. And, and when I say kids, you know, I, I'm talking about the young cooks that are just starting out. And it's interesting because I tell them all the time, man, it's all about confidence. Half the battle, in fact, more than half the battle is about how you present yourself and the confidence that you have. And it's interesting because when I, you know, I don't get to hire that many cooks anymore. But even at the, even at the, the food and beverage director level, it's really interesting when someone walks in and just presents themselves in the most confident way. Because the reality is this, they may not have the skill set that I'm looking for, but if they come in with the confidence and the attitude, I may look over some of those opportunities because of their confidence and their ability to get to that level. I think a lot of times we get very caught up in, in people having the experience on paper, and we, we don't ever pay attention a lot of times to their confidence level, their attitude, how do they approach us how if they're on a zoom call how are they communicating with you you know frankly those are the things that i look for but confidence to me if you have confidence you're probably 60 percent closer to being hired with me just because of your confidence i like it see listeners you've got it you have that confidence if you ever go meet richard you, you already got <laughs> half the battle done so you're working with them when do you start transitioning into that corporate kind of executive chef role a little bit more down the road, to be honest with you. You know, again, I, I didn't have the opportunity to do a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of cooking in in super high end and in, in, in you know fine dining locations around the world, right? Just just wasn't my opportunity. So ultimately, I actually ended up doing a couple other jobs. You know, working in Boston at, at you know different restaurants. I at the time said, hey, I'm a little bit over my my head here. I need to, uh, you know, I opened four or five restaurants with them. And then ultimately, I ended up going and I, and I ended up started working for another chain called Legal Seafoods up here in Boston. 
And I was an executive chef for Legal Seafoods. And I ended up working at a restaurant called the Legal's Test Kitchen. And I was really fortunate to be involved with that project because Legal Seafoods was a pretty straightforward core menu that did extremely well for them. The Test Kitchen was the one place where we really had the opportunity to mess around, come up with dishes, go outside the Legal Seafoods box. I worked with Legal's for a few years. And then I actually went and opened a restaurant called Tastings Wine Bar and Bistro. And Tastings Wine Bar and Bistro was really where I started to focus on my, my cooking. James Beard recognized six times at Tastings Wine Bar and Bistro. I won the Rising Star uh, Chef Award with Star Chefs uh, while I was at Tastings Wine Bar and Bistro. I won top 40 under 40 food service professional in America when I was on, uh, at Tastings Wine Bar and Bistro. And that was truly the restaurant where the owners of that place were hands down extremely instrumental in my success because they didn't get in the way. and They understood that, hey, we are owners, but we weren't the experts, right? And they let the experts do what we did. And they gave us the platform. Frankly, they gave us the capital, right? They, they gave us the opportunity to be successful and we were. And I'll tell you that I did that uh, for a few years. And then Marriott finally came knocking at the door. The Renaissance Hotel in Boston was opening. And the Renaissance at the time was really focused on being part of the community. You know, they got to be local. We have to really have a sense of place. And because my restaurant tastings was that, the chef there would come into the restaurant and ultimately he tried recruiting me as his executive sous chef. And I, and I just kept saying, no, I was in a great position. I really liked him, but it just wasn't what I wanted to do. So interestingly enough, the chef, his name was Greg Griffey. He ended up getting promoted into Mar as a Marriott uh, Global Corporate Chef. And the first person he called was me. And he, and he said, hey, Rich, you know, I'm leaving. And I really think that this would be a great opportunity for you. And I went back, I interviewed, and I was probably one of the first people in a long time in Boston to get hired into Marriott at, at a position like that without having any Marriott experience. In fact, I always share the story that if you know how Marriott works, you have to take certain tests when you get in. Mm -hmm. Well, I failed those tests <laughs> and they wanted to bring me on that they went and they fought and they got waivers and I was able to get on the team. And that's really where my the love of hotels and, and frankly, everything else started to fall into place. I, mean, I worked for Marriott for a few years. I was transferred to uh, Gaylord Opryland, one of the largest uh, non-gaming hotels in the country. I, I was the executive chef of restaurants for them. From there, you know, a couple of years with them, I ended up uh, getting a call from Sodexo. And that was probably the biggest shift in my career was contract food service. But I'll tell you that they came to me with an offer to be their national culinary director of luxury and leisure services here in the United States. And again, man, I'm in my late 20s, right? Again, probably have no business being in this role, but again, confidence, never putting myself in a position where, where I would be looked at in a negative light, you know, and honestly producing results, right, for Marriott and others got me to a point where Sodexo reached out and says, look, would you be willing to be our national culinary director? And I did, and it was amazing. And, and, and it was probably the first time in my career when you're working for one of the largest food service companies in the world where I realized that I'm not the man anymore. Right. Like I'm not I'm not the guy that they're like, oh, Rich is the man. He's the only guy. You know, now I'm competing against thousands of other, you know, chefs and food and beverage professionals. And unfortunately for me, they were sold. And, uh, you know, that division was sold. And I ended up leaving because of that. And I don't know if I would have to be 100 percent honest. You know, it's hard to answer if I'd still be there today. But the reality is that division was sold and I ended up moving on. And for the last six years prior to coming to Remington, I was with uh, Crescent Hotels as Resorts as their vice president of culinary. And I'm going to tell you that, again, confidence and results. The same gentleman who brought me into Marriott, Greg Griffey, was the senior vice president of food and beverage at Crescent. And when he knew that I was on the hunt, you know, he reached out to me and he gave me another chance. And I will tell you that, you know, this gentleman looked past a lot of my, my past, right? He looked past what a lot of people would look at and say, oh, no, we can't trust him or he's not going to, you know, we, we can't hire that kind of a person. He looked past that and he hired me again as, as his VP. And, uh, and I will tell you that I was, I was with Crescent for six and a half years. And the reason that I'm with Remington today is truly that Greg gave me a platform to do what I did. And when Remington Hotels was finally looking to expand their food and beverage offering, it was, it, it was the perfect match for me because our, our CEO 
um, our COO, you know, they just gave me such a feeling of trust and confidence that it was an easy decision to go to Remington. You know, they, Remington's tagline is where passionate people thrive. And if you can't tell by now, I'm extremely passionate about what I do. But that tagline is truly what Remington does. You know, they allow us within the framework of what Remington, uh, what our vision and what our goals are to do what we do. Uh, so that's the long-winded kind of story of how I ended up at Remington. I like it. I like how we unpacked a lot here. And I have some questions to bring it back, but I didn't want to interrupt you because I was caught up in your really kind of meteoric rise, right? And I love hearing stuff, but I want to bring it back to tasting, the tasting Please. room, right? Is that where you started finding like your true style? Because it seems like that's where you won all the awards and the acclaim. Because I feel like that's got to be something that really kind of stamped you. Because without that, you would have just been the legal seafoods and you worked at some other cool places. Was that the place that really made you stand out and kind of push you forward really fast because you got to be in that environment? Listen, I think that that was the place where I was allowed to build the team that I needed to build around me to be able to find myself. And I will tell you this, that I have always been of the school, always, 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 that you need to surround yourself with people that that balance you and that frankly are better than you. And I'm a big believer in that. And what happened at Tastings was that I was allowed to put a team together of some of the most amazing professionals that I've ever worked with. In fact, today, one of them is a co-owner of one of the best restaurants in Berlin, Germany. Another one is, a, is, is an owner of uh, a vegan place in, in Oakland that continues to win awards. I've had guys from that team who are now running whole companies down in, in the Caribbean. So what, I, what it really did for me was it allowed me to understand how I needed to not only promote myself as a chef, but what I needed to do so that we were all successful. It was never about me, Steve, and I think that's the number one thing. It is truly where I was able to find my style of leadership and my style of ultimately how to run a whole restaurant because here's the reality man and if you got chefs out here listening here's the problem of being a chef it doesn't matter how great our food is if service isn't there people will not come back it doesn't matter how amazing the food is if the service is spot on amazing and the food is mediocre guess what people will come back and they'll come back again and again because they built that relationship with the service and that service is what's really giving them the experience. So for me, that's what I learned at Tastings was that it wasn't just about Rich Garcia putting this food on the, on the table. It was about the entire Tastings teams coming together and lifting each other up. So, you know, I'm never going to sit here and tell you that I think that that was where, I, you know, my food style became extremely well known. We were very fortunate that my front of the house team and my leadership team that we had was able to complement what we were doing in the kitchen so that we were successful. Listen, when you're the chef of a place, you're the one that gets the accolades, right? I remember getting an award and one of the dishes was a dish that one of my sous chefs came up with, you know? And that was one of the hardest conversations that I, I've ever had was having to sit down with this person and they knew that they get from me, they were getting all the credit. And even in the public, you know, I would say that exactly what I said to you, this is a team effort. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the awards are given and the accolades go to one person, right? And I got to tell you that I think that's when I realized that I didn't want to be that chef and I didn't want our restaurant to be that. That if the entire team could not celebrate and enjoy those wins, then if they come to me, great. But that wasn't the kind of chef that I wanted to be. And that wasn't what I was going to chase. No, I love that. that. That makes a lot of sense. Shout out to Chef Greg, right? For giving you the shot to get into 100%. Marriott. So I have a question on this because, you know, the hotel guys are like, oh, that's a restaurant chef. He's not a hotel chef, right? What was it like for you transitioning? Because it's very different. You know, for people out there, maybe you can give like the 30 second download of when you go to a hotel F&B versus standalone or restaurant. What was that like for you transitioning? Because Marriott is very corporate driven. What was that they like They are the most corporate of the corporate, right? And look, and I respect that. So I'm going to tell you what it was like for me. It was, a, it, was, it was trial by fire when it came to banquet and catering. That was what it was. I wasn't worried about the restaurant. In fact, I mean, I was very fortunate where we had a celebrity chef running our restaurant called, uh, his name was Michael Schlau here in Boston. You know, amazing, amazing guy, amazing chef. And 
the great thing was the restaurant was kind of humming, right? The restaurant was kind of doing its thing. Didn't have to worry about that. What I realized really quickly was that I needed to not only learn banquet and catering myself, but I actually had to prove that not only to the team that I was working with, but if you've ever worked in hotels in Boston, you know how tight knit that community is. And I can tell you that I heard the scuttlebutt all the time. You know, why are we hiring these guys that don't know hotels? Why are we hiring these guys? They don't know banquet and catering. So I very quickly started to put my focus on the banquet and catering side. I also started to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to work on Sundays and I'm going to work these, these kind of crazy shifts that I didn't have to, but I needed to build my reputation as someone that wasn't just coming in thinking I was, I was a big hot restaurant chef. You know, I'd just been off a couple of James Beard dinners and, and, you know, the rising star chef. I easily probably could have written a ticket at that point in Boston to cook anywhere I want. But the reality was that banquet and catering is how you really have to, if you don't understand banquet and catering, you're, you're gone. I mean, I'll tell you that really quickly. The other thing that's important in our, in the hotel world is you got to understand how the total hotel works. Right. And at the end of the day, food and beverage is an amenity to our hotel guest. Some of our hotels have restaurants that are extremely focused on bringing in the outside guests, but a lot of them, you got to understand that Someone wants a club sandwich. Someone wants a burger. Someone maybe was just traveling for 15 hours. And you know what? They don't want your foie gras. They don't want something crazy. They want an omelet or they want a salad, right? And I think that that was the other piece of the puzzle was that I very quickly had to realize that it wasn't just about me and my food anymore. At tastings, we could create food that was a representation of who we were as a team. Here, we really had to focus on, okay, how do we take care of our hotel guests and how do we make sure they're happy? Because guess what? The guest that comes in off the street isn't giving us our guest satisfaction score. It's the man or the woman who stayed at our hotel and had breakfast or an event that is giving us our scores. So if you can't put yourself in a position where you're not leading what's going on your menu per se, you're not going to be successful. And I think that's the biggest thing that I, that I take away, that I took away and I try to tell people when they're coming into hotels is that if you really want it to be about you, stay in the restaurant world and you'll be successful. But if you can understand that you're just a small part of the bigger experience in that hotel, you'll be extremely successful. That's true. And we've had some other chefs on here that had kind of similar you know, trajectory where they get to do that banquet. Like, I have to do 800 plates, 1,000 plates at the same, what do you mean? It's impossible, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I always love seeing, you know, I, I was always in there helping too, but I always love seeing that first time restaurant chef transition to banquets and then get a plate up 1,000 people in seven minutes was always my favorite thing. Listen, I'm going to tell you this, that at Gaylord Opryland when I was there, I was the executive chef of restaurants. The executive chef of banquets, I mean, this guy, God, God bless this guy, man, because I, I remember days where, I would walk into work and, you know, we would just be, just be shooting the breeze and I'd ask him what he's got going on and casually, oh yeah, yeah, I got 35 double-sided buffets this afternoon to feed 6,000 people. And you're just like, Jesus, like you can't comprehend what that looks like until you yeah. actually see it. So <laughs> no, I love it. So, all right. You transitioned well, cause look, you, you were there in Marriott for a while and I, I was curious to hear what you thought it was like. Do you think the Marines helped you with that? I think the Marines definitely taught me that there's a hierarchy. And Marriott is very, very, uh, they're based on a hierarchy, right? So that's really what it taught me. Look, here's the reality. I think, I think, I think Marriott and any, corp, you know, any corporate organization, right? You also have to remember that you're part of that reputation management, right? You're part of that brand. And people are going to Marriott because they, they enjoy the experience, right? They go to Hilton because they enjoy that experience. That is very, very important you know, to me is to really make sure that when you're in a corporate environment, again, it's not about you anymore. It's what are you going to do to be the best representation of that brand? And if you're at a Renaissance, you have to know what that is. If you're at a Hilton, you have to know what that is. Hell, if you're at a Crown Plaza in the US versus a Crown Plaza in Europe, you have to understand the difference, right? So I think that that to me is more of where, as, as a food and beverage professional, again, you just have to know your place within the hotel and how you, because I truly believe this, how food and beverage and how you can truly be the person or the department that fixes everything. And I think that that's the cool part about being in food and beverage is anytime something goes wrong, 
Yes, who's I, getting I, called, right? It's food and yeah. beverage. So. You, yeah, amenity, a drink, a food. I got you. I got your back. Yeah. So I want to jump into, you talked about Crescent Hotels. You touched on yeah. it. But you were there for a long time. You were there for yeah, five almost and six a half years. years. Yeah. And so what was that like? Because you mentioned it, right? You get to that corporate level. And sometimes when you're at that level, it's very different than property level, right? Yeah. How did you transition? Was it easy for you? Was it hard? Because I know sometimes in certain hotel groups, ah, corporate's on the way, it's going to be a headache. Or was it, oh, I'm excited to see Richard, he's coming. So listen, I think fortunately for me, and I say this very humbly, but you know, I think that I've always been welcomed, right? Because again, I'm the kind of person that is very quickly connecting with the F&B team, telling, listen, I'm an operator, guys. I'm just like you. In fact, you probably have more education than I do on paper. You know, I'm really trying to build those connections with them first and foremost. So, but I can tell you that Crescent was very unique. Crescent was what's called true third-party management. We did not own one of our hotels. Um, we, we worked for owners. And in many cases, we worked for owners who that was their livelihood, right? So I think with what, what I was really shocked with at Crescent and what, what really I think was the hardest thing to, to get used to was for the most part, an owner says jump and you say how high. I mean, that, that, that was really it. And I can tell you when you're in the corporate world of Marriott and you've got kind of these boundaries, you know, Marriott's really in the, in the, in the control when it comes to ownership. But when you're a third party manager, you know, you're really, you're really at, at, at the beckoning call of what they need. Right. And, 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 and I understand that because that's their livelihood. So Crescent was very, very much a place where I learned that relationships are extremely important at the corporate level, how you communicate at the corporate level, not only internally, but how you're communicating with owners is extremely important. And that was when I really learned that I have this stick when I'm in the kitchen and I can really connect with people. But I will tell you that that stick doesn't work when you're sitting in an executive boardroom, you know, and you can't sit there and talk about your you know, juvenile delinquency and, and not being in high school. So, so the reality was that I very quickly uh, had a crash course in how to interact at that level because I frankly had, had never done that. You know, to be frank, even at Sodexo, my role was cut like strictly culinary and wherever I went, I was in the kitchen, right? So, and I very rarely had to deal with ownership. Well, at Crescent, I mean, I was in business development pitches. Um, I was on calls and individual visits with owners specifically because food and beverage is what they all care about. So that's really was what was the difficult part was learning how to present myself and how to interact at that level. Because let's be frank, right? The last VP of food and beverage they talked to could have been talking to them about their Cornell degree and, you know, all the other corporate experience that they had. I didn't never, I never had that opportunity. So I really had to, to learn how to drive results and be able to prove that I've been able to drive those results. And once you start to drive results and put money in owners' pockets, I'm going to tell you that they could care less what your background was, you're, you're producing for them. So that's really what Crescent did for me is it taught me how important it is to deliver results and be able to communicate them at a professional level. I love it. And so you're there five and a half years, you're, you're doing well. Now I always like hearing about this. So does Remington come knocking on your door or do you go looking? How does that happen? I'll be frank. I, I think a little bit of both. I, I was fortunate where I had a, I, I had a colleague that was at Crescent that had gone over to Remington and, and, had, and was there for, for a minute. During the pandemic, you know, I'll be frank, right? I think it gave us all an opportunity to kind of sit back and say, hey, you know, what, what's, what's next for me, right? Or what's next for us or what's next for the family? And as I was kind of evaluating that during the pandemic, Look, we did what we had to do, right? We we took the pay cuts, we 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 took on the additional responsibilities. But bigger picture was that I think for me, and this is purely just just you know how I was thinking, the third party world for me at that time was in such an in like no one knew what was gonna happen, right? I mean, hell, we didn't know if we were gonna have hotels anymore uh, yeah. in 2020, right? I mean, we just scary. didn't know yeah. it was scary. And I think that for me as I started to kind of research what was going on and let's be frank, right? Like many people during the pandemic, Oh, is this an opportunity for me to do something different? Right. So as I started to kind of research what was out there, Remington hotels has always been known to be a very, very strong rooms focused company. And they, they've had F and B and they've had some great, you know, great runs in F and B, 
but they never had the position that, that they had posted, right? They never had a senior vice president of food and beverage, and they never had programs uh, and platforms. You know, I reached out to the colleague that I knew. Fortunately enough, again, we talked about this earlier, right? My reputation management and delivering results for years, it was probably a no-brainer for him to, to introduce me to Remington. And again, you know, it's something that you may not think about today, but five, six years from now, you may be running into somebody again that can help you. And if you haven't managed your reputation and the results you deliver, forget about getting that job, right? So I was fortunate enough that that happened. I went down to Dallas and I met with Remington. And I will tell you that, you know, I, I met with the COO and I met with the CEO and I was just blown away because first and foremost, you know, we have a CEO who's not your traditional CEO. He's not the uh, older gentleman who's been in the business for 45 years. You know, he's a younger gentleman. He just, you know, just turned 40, I believe, has a very different vision. And I'm going to be honest, when you're around the same age and you got a CEO who's a little more maybe relaxed uh, in the way that he dresses and, and, and his attitude, for someone like me, it was it was like holy shit! Finally, finally, I got you know I've got someone that I can connect with. And on the flip side of that, I'll, I'll tell you that one of the biggest reasons I joined Remington was that I felt that they had a lot of good balance because the COO, uh, my COO Stan Kennedy, you know he is that tenured, been in the business for a long time, right? Come up through the right places, and he's the balance. And I I thought that that was such a unique balance at the top that. I'm like, you know what? Th this is a place that I feel I could fit into right away. And I will tell you that from day one, the synergies, the ability to, 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 to thrive, right? Where passionate people thrive, they have allowed me to do that. And I'm not going to sit here and say that they don't get in your way because that, you know, their job, they've got goals as well. But what I can tell you is that there is a trust level at Remington within all the departments that really makes us feel very comfortable about being able to challenge each other and make each other better. And I tell you that the culture that our CEO was able to really sell me on is truly what happens there. And 18 months later, I can tell you that I am still over the moon about joining the company and, and just the vision and the future for what we're doing in food and beverage. It, it's what you dream about, right? As you know, when you're like, oh man, I can't wait to be the SVP and I'm going to have all this control. And look, sometimes you do and sometimes you don't, right? In this case, it's not about control, it's about trust. And they trust me and my team to do our job. And we've been able to deliver on that. So that's the Remington story. That's awesome for you because you don't find that in many places, we'll say. So when you do find it, hold on to it. Well, listen, remember, Steve, that if I wasn't delivering results with my team, it probably wouldn't be this fun either, right? And, and yeah. I think that's extremely important is that we're not just doing it to do it. Like we're, we're doing it. We're delivering on the results. We're hitting our goals. We're, we're, we're doing our job to be able to keep doing our job, if, if that makes sense. <laughs> it makes complete sense. So what is a day in the life of an SVP? Is it a lot of travel every week? Is it you're talking to F&B directors directly? What is it like for you in a normal Depends, man. It, it can go in any direction. You know, I'll tell you that I'm very fortunate here where I get involved with a lot of different things. Um, you know, give you some examples. Business development is probably 30 to 40% of, of my month. You know, I'm on a, a lot of business development calls, you know, selling the dream, right? Selling what we do. Again, something that I never thought that I would be, you know, at the business development table in the boardroom, right? So that, that, that's, that's a big part of it. Developing the direction and the vision is, is probably a good 20 or 30%. And I'm going to be honest, you know, sometimes I think my team hates me because I pivot a lot. But I think that that pivot is what keeps us relevant and trendy, and, and we're able to be nimble to do that. So I think from a pointing our, us in the right direction, it, it's probably about 20% of that. The rest of my time as an SVP is really spent, and I, again, very fortunate here, is spent working with my regional team. So I've got a vice president of food and beverage named Ted Peters. You know, this guy is truly a talent. I mean, he was cooking next to Gordon Ramsay at the Savoy in London, and then spent time, you know, a good amount of time at the Ritz, uh, Carlton brand. So he's my VP of food and beverage. He true, I'm going to tell you that he, he's the guy that's frankly out there making the food happen now. He's, he, he's, he's really driving the culinary side. And then I've got three other regional food and beverage directors. And again, fortunate at Remington that they've provided me the layers to be able to, to do what we need to do. So I spend the rest of my time working with them on their regions, making sure that they're 
brands are doing what the brands are looking for and their independent uh, and upscale hotels are delivering uh, you know, on what those goals are. And then I can tell you that a good amount of my time is definitely spent um, on being a liaison between the brands and what we're doing. I think that's extremely important you know, to have relationships with the Hiltons and the Marriott's and IHGs of the world. Those relationships really help us, what I like to call, bend the brand when we need to, right? There are definitely a lot of things in the franchise side of things yeah. that we may decide, hey, you know what? We, we want to do things a little bit differently. And notice I didn't say break, right? I never want to break the brand, I never want to break the brand yeah. right? Because there's a good relationship there. But I think that building those relationships and bending brand standards when appropriate, if I didn't spend time on those relationships, we wouldn't be able to do that, right? And a great example is our beverage program. Our beverage program is not necessarily the brand standard uh, in some of our places. It, it is the standard that we've put. But what we do try to do is make sure that we are aligned with what the vision is of the brand. So for example, at Marriott, we have to use fresh juices. Totally cool with that. We use fresh juices. Marriott likes you to call that out. So we make sure that we're calling out important elements for the brand. But you know what? We may use a different spirit because you know that, that's our partner. Um, so I spend a lot of my time focused on how can we benefit our ownership? How can we benefit Remington without breaking the brand? But if I got to bend it, I spend some time figuring out how to do that. And I bet they copy some things that worked really well that they didn't think they would like. I'm going to tell you this. We, were, we, we got a huge accolade last year. We got a letter from Hilton. And we had started to put our, we have a core menu program at our branded full service hotels. So we have about 60 hotels on a menu platform that Hilton reached out to us and they said, you know, you guys are way ahead of many other franchise groups. And frankly, you're a little bit ahead of us, you know, coming out of pandemic and putting the core menu together. And what was really cool was that what they were basically doing was without saying, hey, do your thing, right? We're not going to get in the way. They were acknowledging that, hey, you guys have, have, have done a phenomenal job and we're going to take a look at this to help us put our core program together. And I just thought that that was such a pat on the back for what my team had done, that you had one of the brands acknowledging, hey, guys, what you've done is really great. We're going to look at it and see if there's something we can take. So, so to your point, you know, they definitely look at what we're doing. And again, I, I give a lot of credit to the company I work for, for allowing us, frankly, to be able to, to not only have those layers of leadership, but also be able to have the relationships with the brand to allow us to sometimes bend it. And what we're seeing is it's benefiting us. I mean, financially, you know, I, I'm always looking for, for, for better results, even when they're great results. But I can tell you that from a cost of goods perspective, I know many of my colleagues struggled in 2022. I understand why. I'm going to tell you that we beat all of our food cost goals. We beat all of our beverage cost goals. And frankly, our margin is pretty damn good. And again, it could be better without inflation. But the reality was that we, we did pretty good despite all the challenges. And it takes relationships to do that. You got to have it trust in your vendors. You yeah, it. man, you got it. So, Richard, you've been with me for a while on this call, and I want to be cognizant of your time, but I got to ask one, one last question. So, if young, young Richard, you know, you've been all over the place now. You've been in the, in the Marines. You've been at great companies. You've been all over the country. But if young Richard, 15-year-old, was starting in one of your kitchens with Remington right now, and you just happened to be on a site visit, check-in, and he happened to ask you, for some advice. What advice would you give young Richard if you were talking to him today? I think, uh, listen, I think the reality is this, man. First and foremost, it's much more about building a relationship with young Richard and understanding what's happening with young Richard and what are the, what are the influences that could be causing young Richard to go a different path. You know, I think we forget sometimes that we've got a lot of influence on these, these young kids and it's easy for us to not pay attention to their personal lives. And it's easy. It, it, and it's not our job, frankly, right? I'm not, not saying that it's our job to do that. But I'm going to say that if I'm talking to young Richard, and I'm seeing young Richard kind of potentially go down this, this path, I'm trying to find out what I can do to help and, and, and trying to find out that, hey, look, is it, if it's something I can help with schedule wise, you know, let me help you with that. Frankly, if I need to get involved with education, 
I've got resources to be able to help people do that, right? I mean, there's some amazing places that I know that will take underprivileged, you know, youth and put them in a culinary program and pay for that. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that for me, knowing where I've come from, I would have wished, and I think I wish that there would have been someone along my path that at some point would have pulled me aside and said, hey, is everything okay? How can I help? That's honestly what I would do because I think that in today's day and age, I mean, God, I, you, you turn on the news today and it's, 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 I mean, I'm here in Massachusetts. I can tell you that in the last month here, we have had three or four news stories where people are, are murdering their children, right? It blows my mind, right? It blows my mind. And not to take it into this kind of serious hole, but the reality though is that I do believe that there's a lot of these things that can be prevented if someone just cared, if someone just asked a question. So I would just ask the question to young Richard if everything was okay. And I think that that one question could potentially put somebody on the right path or at the very least, raise a concern where now as a concerned leader, I can try and help this individual out. And look, I know some people don't want to get involved or don't maybe don't have the time, but I think that if, if we all kind of said, hey, you know, this one person needs a little bit of help and we, we kind of reached out or, or, or figured out a way to at least point them in the right direction, I think that we would be part of a huge change uh, in our culture moving forward. God, I love that. That's a great Great advice. And I think a great place to end. Richard, I appreciate you taking the time. I know how busy you are running hotels across the country. Appreciate it very much. Grateful for it. Hey, Steve, thank you very much for having me on and uh, definitely look forward to uh, you know catching up with you again. This podcast is brought to you by Biscayne Coffee. Biscayne Coffee was founded with a giving spirit and a big idea to enjoy delicious coffee roasted in Miami while helping save Biscayne Bay and the animals that live there. As a former food and beverage director, I can assure you these are some of the best quality beans on the planet. 10% of every coffee sold is donated to nonprofits to help preserve Biscayne Bay for all to enjoy. Visit BiscayneCoffee.com today and use promo code MENTOR at checkout to save 10% on your first order. Drink good coffee and create a good outcome. This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.